Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Thank you for joining us for episode 38 of Discovering the Old Testament. This time, we will continue our discussion of the book of Ezekiel, a very important book coming out of the time of Israel's exile in Babylon that helped shape a vision for a restored Israel. You'll recall from last time that Ezekiel's work paints a pretty grim picture of Israel as rebellious, disobedient, and thick-headed to the point of intractability. The original exodus, in Ezekiel's view, was a complete failure. Israel had been disobedient from day one. The catastrophe of the fall of Jerusalem was just the natural outcome of a long train of screw-ups. We mentioned last time the sins of neglect and abuse of the poor and the vulnerable, but another class of sins that gets a lot of play in Ezekiel is the sin of idolatry, which had apparently even found its way into the temple precinct. He makes repeated reference to this in general terms as something that infested Israel as far back as Egypt and her time wandering in the wilderness. He also makes passing reference to child sacrifices, presumably those offered to the pagan god Molech. But even though Ezekiel takes a very dim view of the Exodus and the events surrounding it, his book, ironically, bears certain structural resemblances to the book of Exodus. At least, this is true from a thematic perspective. You will recall that Jerusalem fell twice. Once in 598, when the Babylonians plundered the city's best and brightest, and the second time destroying the city proper in 586 BCE. Ezekiel found himself in Babylon as part of that first defeat. From exile, he both castigated the survivors for their mistakes, but also waited anxiously along with the rest of the exiles for word of the ultimate fate of the city when it once again refused to bow to the wishes of Babylon. The pivotal moment in Ezekiel's writing comes in chapter 20. Ezekiel is speaking to some of the Israelite elders who have asked for some kind of guidance, and he lets them have it, both barrels. But not only will he not even give them the time of day, figuratively speaking, he shuts down the very idea that they are going to be like other nations. As it turns out, God has other plans. In the first 19 chapters and much of chapter 20, God doesn't have much good to say about his rebellious people. But well along into chapter 20, after the final catastrophe has all but overtaken them, the tone changes dramatically. It is when all is lost that God finally hands out an offering of hope. Here are verses 33 through 38 of chapter 20. As I live, says the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, 
as I entered into judgment with your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the staff, and will bring you within the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they reside as aliens, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Let's parse this because it encapsulates what God has in store for his wretched and wayward people. He's going to forcibly liberate Israel and be king over her. He will bring them into a wilderness and speak with them face to face, just as he did before. He will test them, try them, purge out the lightweights, and put them under covenant. Except for the part about not entering the land of Israel, this sounds just like the events of the original Exodus. Given that a common definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, readers may be forgiven for wondering whether God is just setting the stage for another grand disaster, or, since Exodus was the defining event in Israel's history, perhaps Ezekiel didn't have any other script or pattern to go by in phrasing his hope of restoration. Ezekiel's task was a truly unenviable one. As we noted last time, not only was the temple priesthood swept away, the institution of prophecy had been almost completely discredited. The people were not only demoralized, they were facing the prospect of building a new life in Babylon, and there was little incentive to cling to a failed religious structure. By the same token, there was plenty of incentive to go with the winning team, which in this case would have been the religion of the Babylonians, who seemed quite capable of taking care of their city. In this environment, Ezekiel had to try to pick up the pieces and put everything back together again. If Ezekiel's prophecy posited a new exodus and a new covenant, what was going to be different this time? Ironically, Ezekiel was not exactly anti-Babylon. Like his contemporary Jeremiah, he saw Babylon as a necessary corrective to the excesses and folly of Israel, a tool used by God as a corrective measure, much the same way that first Isaiah saw the Assyrians. At the same time, Ezekiel also makes clear that this time the administrative and political bonds that hold everything together will not be as before. Israel will not be like other nations. Given his condemnation of the governing institutions, he also had few illusions about their ability to hold the line as far as righteousness was concerned. This is where his rather radical theology of divine judgment comes in. As we mentioned before, Ezekiel rejects both the idea of collective punishment of people for the sin of an individual and the notion that the troubles of the present were due to the sins of the ancestors. The good news was that you weren't bound to suffer for something you didn't do. The bad news was that it was all on you. However, Ezekiel put the responsibility on the individual. He makes the terms of absolution much easier and, we might add, less bureaucratic. Jeremiah also took a similar view. Ezekiel also makes the religious institution less brittle and more robust. 
he apparently realized that if everything depended on the presence of a temple and a political kingship over the land of Canaan, it constituted a weak point that endangered the covenant people if those institutions were compromised. Even as he prophesied a new restored Israel, Ezekiel insisted that there must be a commitment in the heart of each and every Israelite, so that if the community were to be broken up again and bereft of king and temple, the individual Israelites would still be able to find God and apprehend the terms and laws of the covenant as something to live by. It was quite likely that this idea helped to drive the formation and canonization of the Torah over a hundred years later, as a book that was intended to be read, studied, and understood by all. Another remarkable change was that this interior change was all that was needed. One did not even have to be born an Israelite in order to become part of the covenant. It was open to anyone willing to make the necessary commitment. If a restoration was to take place, what was the plan for it? Following chapter 20, we see more oracles of doom which explain why the city must fall, which it does by chapter 24. But starting in chapter 25 and following, we see a series of oracles aimed at other nations. The nations in question are Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. This particular selection of nations may not mean much to most modern readers, but they are the very same nations which God commands the Israelites to attack and destroy in the Deuteronomistic retelling of the Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 7. These were the nations that stood in the way, so to speak, about whom God commanded the Israelites to make no covenant with them, nor to show them any mercy. Just as God had commanded Joshua to go and destroy these peoples as a requirement for entering the Promised Land, so now the oracles against these nations serve as a preface to a new covenant and a restored Israel. These oracles make for interesting reading as examples of late Iron Age trash-talking. For example, in chapter 29, Ezekiel castigates Pharaoh, who says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. But God says that he will drag Pharaoh out of his own river like a fish on a hook. Egypt comes in for special abuse, probably because when Jerusalem was in extremis, Egypt sent a relief column that failed to break Nebuchadnezzar's grip on the city. Tyre also gets some pretty harsh cursing as a major source of idolatry that Ezekiel held responsible in part for the nation's demise. In the midst of all this combative language, however, there is a remarkable point that is easy to overlook. Where before God commanded the Israelites to take up arms against their neighbors and wipe them out under Joshua's leadership, this time it is God who will do the heavy lifting. Even when we get to the climactic battle of Gog and Magog in chapter 38 and 39, the believers are not part of the fight. They do not take up arms. 
This is not a fluke. There are several references in canonical and apocryphal writings to a final battle, Ezekiel, Revelation, and the apocryphal books of 4th Ezra and the Sibylline Oracles, and the War Scroll from Qumran. Of all these, only the War Scroll stipulates that the believers take part directly in that final battle. Regarding that final battle of Gog and Magog, this is a subject of endless speculation. It is also an early example of the kind of cosmic conflict that became a major theme in intertestamental literature, and grew into a virulent and dangerous idea that Israel could only return to its former glory through a sort of holy war in which God would fight the battles that Judah saw fit to start. No one has any idea who the mysterious King of the North is who will lead this massive army against Israel. Growing up in the shadow of the Cold War years, a common assumption was that it would be Russia. My scholarly opinion is that the King of the North can be none other than Santa Claus. With the seven opposing nations out of the way, there remained the restoration of the people itself. Chapter 37 contains a vivid metaphor for this restoration of the people in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones that God restores and quickens with his breath. From utter desolation comes a vast multitude representing the house of Israel. However, he is not just talking about the Jews lost or scattered in the recent unpleasantness. Ezekiel's prophecy also extends to the lost tribes who had been forcibly displaced by the Assyrians centuries before. Unfortunately, the fate of those peoples remains a mystery to this day. But another feature of this chapter is that contrary to what we find in chapter 20, we now see a prophecy that at least implies that the Israelites will be restored to their ancestral lands. This is made explicit in chapter 39 verses 25 through 29 following the defeat of the armies of Gog. Therefore thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they live securely in their land with no one to make them afraid when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have displayed my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then gathered them into their own land. I will leave none of them behind, and I will never again hide my face from them. I will pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Because Ezekiel was firmly grounded in the priestly tradition that served the temple, and given the centrality of the temple in Israelite religion, it comes as no surprise that chapters 40 through 42 seek to describe a new temple as part of the new covenant, what is sometimes referred to as the third temple. The chapters that provide the details can be difficult even for seasoned scholars. Quite a few have attempted to reconstruct what this new temple would look like. Since this presentation is audio only, suffice it to say that the general plan is for a square enclosure consisting of two or three concentric square walls 
with gates in the middle of all four outer walls, the sancta located in the center, as you would expect. The reconstruction of the temple posited in the temple scroll from the Dead Sea seeks to merge the designs of Solomon's temple and Ezekiel's temple, along with alterations demanded by Essene theology. There have been several efforts to build this third temple. One was under the Emperor Hadrian, who gave the Jews permission to build it, but then changed his mind. When Jerusalem was taken by the rebels under Simon bar Kokhba in 132, they resumed construction, but the revolt was crushed and the temple remained unfinished. Another effort took place under the Emperor Julian, but according to accounts of the time, the project failed because when the workers attempted to rebuild, mysterious balls of fire came from under the earth and scorched them, eventually causing them to give up. Today the question of the Third Temple remains. There are organizations that are working to accomplish this. However, a major obstacle is that the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy site in all of Islam, occupy much of the territory on the Temple Mount. The site has become a flashpoint for Arab-Israeli violence, as evidenced by Ariel Sharon's ill-fated visit to the Temple Mount that literally touched off the Second Intifada. The Israeli chief rabbinate forbids Jews to go up on the Temple Mount on the belief that while the Temple itself is gone, the holy sites remain, and that a visitor might inadvertently desecrate forbidden areas like the Holy of Holies, which they believe retain their former sanctity, potency, and potential consequences for profanation. Other Orthodox Jews maintain that the Temple can only be rebuilt after the coming of the Messiah. Another difficulty to be overcome by those who would see a restored Temple is the restoration of the infrastructure supporting it. This includes the Sanhedrin, the governing body and ultimate authority on Jewish law, which was dissolved by the Byzantine Emperor in 358 CE. Clearly, restoring the Temple involves more than just the building. An intriguing possibility has been posited by several 20th and 21st century scholars based on findings that the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock do not, in fact, occupy the exact spot where the Temple stood. These scholars claim that the Temple itself stood well to the north or south of these Muslim holy places. Of course, given the current climate, there is zero chance of a third Temple sprouting up alongside these sites. Those on all sides of serious efforts to restore a Jewish temple agree that this can only come about through a process of cooperation and peace. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.